Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. and welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Rachel Forsyth, senior reporter at Hort Week, and today I'm joined by Lynn Marcus. Lynn has been designing gardens since 1997, starting her own garden design practice in 2006, with her portfolio ranging from the contemporary to the classic, from the large-scale gardens to small courtyards. Lynn was also appointed chair of the Society of Garden Designers in 2020, which will be holding a two-day symposium on the 9th and 10th of June to address the deepening climate crisis and explore the positive impact garden and landscape design can have on the environment. So a huge welcome to Lynn. Thank you. Um, I thought we could just sort of kick off uh, by asking you what your favourite current design trends are at the moment. I guess my current design trend favourites are all based on natural gardens um, that we are actually looking at our gardens as spaces that are actually gardens rather than massive rooms with lots of kitchens and all sorts of um, fandangle stuff in them and that we actually go outside and enjoy the space as a garden rather than as just another room in the house. And that seems to be very much the trend everywhere at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to dive in with a topic that I know you're very passionate about. Um, I think it's quite safe to say we're at a critical point where climate change is concerned. So I'm really interested to know how that's having an impact on the way that you design gardens at the moment. It's difficult, isn't it? Because actually clients still really want the same things. They still want to go outside in their garden. They want to enjoy their garden. They want to have their play spaces for their children and they want places to hang out and relax with friends. Um, so the, the big trick is to be able to 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 facilitate all of those things and still facilitate um, biodiversity, uh, pollination and all the other things that uh, we are all holding so dear and are so very important. And my feeling about it is always really now that we have a duty to take our clients with us. 
um, and we have to we have to be client central, but we also have to, in the process of designing the garden, go step by step and encourage our clients to want the same things we do, um, which is basically approaching the garden from a let's see what we can keep perspective. Let's have a light touch with it and let's recycle as much as we can use as little concrete as possible, make sure everything is completely porous and that our planting is naturalistic, but actually also appropriate for where we are in, in, well, in the United Kingdom. And how are your clients responding to this approach? Are they quite on board with the sustainable, environmentally friendly gardens or do you ever find yourself having to really encourage them to get on board? Funny enough, I did have a client the other day say to me, mm, can I have a barbecue? Have you got anything against those? <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite funny, actually. Um, and I, I actually had to bite my tongue. So, so of course not. We do all have to go out and do these things in our gardens, but we have to be just mindful because we're just the stewards of the space that we own in our it, it, outside our houses. Um, and I find that when we go through the process, clients become quite, quite compliant they all have young children they're all aware well they don't all have young children lots of them have young children and they're all desperately aware of the state we're in and actually begin to want to contribute um, to trying to do something about it but the other really positive thing I think is that if you plant and you build a garden build and plant a garden um, with sustainability in mind um, quite often it can be quite a lot cheaper and that is always going to grab the garden the, the client where it really matters which is they can have a lovely garden and it might well cost them less money. Yeah absolutely and do you have any advice to garden designers trying to navigate this with their clients do you have any sort of tricky experiences that you've kind of had to navigate? Uh, tricky experiences no I mean uh Things there are things that they think they want that you have to persuade them against. I mean, there is this sort of more sophisticated part of it, which is really you know build with as few walls as possible, which is easily said if you've got a bigger space. But if you're in a small urban space, um, in a hilly area like I live in Muswell Hill, it's quite difficult because gardens aren't that big. Um, but what you don't want are lots of terracing and garden, lots of terracing and walls, um, which are hugely intrusive. So you try and slope the soil as much as possible, as few drains as possible so that all hard services drain into planting as many porous services as possible so that's all great the problems arise when people uh, want massive outdoor sort of cooking areas um, or they my big bet noir is artificial grass which I think should be made illegal um, but um, only that area and normally I manage to persuade clients away from it um, or, because it's just such a such a dangerous product yeah, I, I've heard you speak about your um, oh, you? your sort of arguments <laughs> against this before. Yeah, um, do you think that's the biggest that's the biggest issue in the industry currently? No, there are lots of issues, but if you sort of have a pyramid of horrors, I do not understand how clients or how anyone rather forget clients how anyone thinks that um, they can't take a bag at the supermarket, but it's all right to cover all of their outside space with plastic. And I don't really understand why these connections aren't being made. And the only reason I can think they're not being made is, is really, really good marketing that tries to avoid these points. I mean, many, many companies are addressing the issue of, you know, recycling the plastic because the plastic has been non-recyclable because it's multi-polymer. Um, but they're not addressing all the other issues in that basically you're creating a complete dead zone in your garden. And 
And um, in terms of other things that you may have adapted for climate change reasons, what about planting? Are you sort of trying to think about that a bit more, future-proofing, things like that? Well, I've always planted, always planted um, with a very high proportion of soft landscaping. Um, and I work in a lot of areas where, which are conservation areas which demand it. You have to have permission to do stuff in your garden and they want at least 60% soft landscaping. Um, I've also worked in areas where the local council says they want predominantly native plants, which is fantastic, except that um, that is anything that was actually standing at the end of the last ice age and has naturally occurred subsequently. So it does <laughs> limit your choices. Um, but uh, and also is that isn't future proofing it for, for, um, for climate change, because a lot of them aren't going to survive terribly well. So, yeah, you can future proof, but what you can't do is say, well, guess what? You know, I'm in the middle of London and I'm just going to stick a load of Mediterranean silverleaf plants in because then they'll be fine um, because they will not, because they will not necessarily be happy to grow in clay. And if you are going to grow these plants in somewhere like in London on a clay basin, then you have got to do an awful lot more to uh, to your garden to make that possible by creating free draining soil. And then you are just compounding the problem because you're importing lots of materials, which is exactly what you don't want to do. So I think probably the answer is to start limiting our palates and looking far more closely and carefully about where we are in the country. So uh, what I can grow in London, you can probably, you'll be able to grow something completely different in the west of Scotland or in Cornwall. And I just think we have to look more carefully at our own planting palettes. Yeah. And where do you think this needs to lead from? Is it going to come from garden designers? Does it need to be a whole industry effort, including sort of artificial grass and, you know, you're wanting to reduce that usage? Well, I think garden design, well, members of the SGD are pretty much on board with um, with this. I mean, that's what the symposium is all about. We are looking at ways forward together um, in order to do something about um, artificial growth. I mean, we banned it from all our, um, our, our advertising and sponsorship and everything um, three years ago now um, and remain the only body to have done so. Um, and it's a very difficult thing, isn't it? It costs, you know, the Garden Design Journal quite a bit of money. But after a year or so, um, we found other people to replace um, advertisers. So it is entirely possible. Um, but I think it's an industry-wide effort, to be honest. Um, and I think it has to come from landscapers as well as garden designers because they're always a landscapers advertise installing it. And I think people just simply have to start taking a stand on it. And what do you think is holding people back at the moment? Um, it's lucrative. Yeah. And do you want to screw up that? <laughs> no, no, I want your honest, your honest um, opinion. I, I don't know. And also, it's not just that. It's just that pe- for some reason, people haven't made the connection. And I don't understand why the public at, jar- at large hasn't made the connection and neither do I understand how government isn't prepared to legislate. Um, And I know they don't like to legislate against these things, but the reality is, is that they legislate against, you know, single use plastic bottles um, and uh, supermarket bags, as I've said. Um, So I would would put this on the same part, except it's even more dangerous because, uh, you know, it stops any animal from 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 being involved. And also it heats up to such an extent that it creates um, uh, urban heat islands. So but none of these uh, these uh, issues are, are, are examined at all. Although I do believe finally there's some research going into it now.
Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on one just about uh, artificial grass, but it, if you're looking at a list of things that are the most damaging that we're putting in our gardens, I think this has to be number one. And what are some of those other issues that we need to address in terms of climate change? Uh, climate change or sustainability, or both? I guess both, yeah. Water, water use. Uh, use of irrigation um, mm-hmm. it's quite hard without also working especially on new builds working with um, architects and how they're draining from buildings or uh, if they're putting in basements where is all the water going um, there are lots of issues that where I think we have to work as an industry together with um, people who are designing the outside space along with people who are designing uh, the house and the inside space so it's not just down to um, uh, people working on the outside, so to speak. But I did a project recently, and I, I we went through with I went through with the drainage engineer because it's a very big project, and we stripped up pretty much every drain that was not necessary, except belts and braces around the house uh, because of flash flooding. Um, it wasn't necessarily to have any drains at all in the garden, uh, so everything drains into into planting. Um, and then the next thing is to make sure that you're not overusing irrigation systems. In fact, I did a project in Sussex, which is seriously hot and dry and free draining, uh, and we didn't put uh, irrigation in at all and have had virtually no casualties, just a few. Um, and that's fab- fantastic. It's just by, you know, after a year or so, most plants should be able to survive quite happily with the occasional bit of watering without actually installing massive irrigation systems and top up tanks with uh with uh with um mains water top up which i think is unacceptable now it's becoming unacceptable and the other thing is using very large plants um i can't see how importing a huge tree on the back of one truck all the way then to be lifted over a house with a crane to be moved with a telehandler and then for someone to dig a big hole with a digger and then to put that tree in is actually saying well it's it's a it's a sensible carbon capture it's not you've expended so much carbon just getting that tree into place so we have to think about smaller trees um we have to you know a tree that one person can carry over their shoulder into the garden uh we have to uh Use smaller trees, they're better at carbon capture, and really importantly, they need less water and they adapt far faster to their circumstances. We just have to go back a little bit, look to the past, I think, and look to what we used to do before so much was readily available. So a lot of the future of garden design will be looking back. Well, that is what the symposium is about, of course. I yeah. mean, we're not entirely about that, but it's largely looking at you know, for goodness sake, for hundreds of years, people have been building wonderful gardens without <laughs> without all this stuff that we have um, and uh, without using massive plants and just waiting for them to to grow. I mean, I was on the, on the motorway the other day on Sunday and looking at um, all the um, huge, um, what do you call them, the, uh, the warehouses for uh, all the big distribution companies, I'll try and not all use all their names, but they're obvious, you know, Amazon and so forth. Massive, massive warehouses. And some of them have done nothing. And some of them have actually put tons and tons of tree saplings in. And you think, oh, gosh, at least they're trying to make an effort. I mean, thinking about everything that we do, I mean, all the roofs could be turned into um, 
farms or places to grow plants or anything. But all the things that we do, we need to be thinking about every time we put a building up. I think we've got to be thinking much more about being green led rather than green washing mm-hmm. and, uh, and do it for real. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you've mentioned the um, Society of Garden Designers symposium a few times. What do you hope is going to come from that symposium? I know that you're working on a future aesthetic. Yes, I mean, I can't, I can't. I don't want to predetermine it. I think when we talk about the Society of Garden Designers, it's us. I mean, it's all of our nineteen hundred members. We are us. It's not you know council or it's not the speakers. Um, and hopefully, what's going to come from it is a collaborative thought process. I mean, we do have breakout sessions. So the idea being that we can start working or thinking together as groups. Um, I hope that there will be lots of other people other than garden designers there, suppliers and um, and landscapers who, uh, after all, we can't build our gardens without them. So I hope that we will all be thinking together about the way forward. The idea is for us to produce um, um, a manifesto uh, for the future, but I really don't want to predetermine what that is other than the, all of the issues that we've been discussing today, I'm hoping will be addressed. Mm. And where will that sort of be be shared if it does come to light? Um, it'll be shared on the SGD website. It'll be shared as a as a, a newsletter. It'll be shared as a press release. Um, it'll be shared uh, wherever we can manage to share it. I might even send a copy to Defra. Oh, hopefully, um, it's something that government can get behind. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Um, and in terms of working with your clients at the moment, what are some of the things that are really coming out trend-wise? My, my entire garden design approach is about about the house or the building and the environment it's in. Mm-hmm. And that is the only trend that I'm really, really interested in, um, in the sense that, you know, obviously you're led by the client taste. So, and that varies, you know, depending on who they are and what their taste is. Um, so it can be more contemporary, it can be more classic, it can be more arts and craft, it can be um, less arts and craft, it can be whatever the, you know, that's the point, isn't it? It's a client brief and the client actually says roughly what they want, not, normally not in a great deal of detail, actually, you have to read between the lines, spend a lot of time looking at their home and what their hopes and wishes are, um, and then try and turn that into some sort of reality. But to be honest, I think it always relates to the house, but I always try and use British stone. I can't locally source it, sadly, because we don't have too many quarries in London. But uh, when I'm working in London, that is. But I do do source it locally if I'm out of London. Um, and that basically, it just I just think the whole thing needs to gel as a piece. And I always have felt that. And, you know, from the if you're standing in a London garden, you can see a borrowed view. Or if you're standing in a Sussex garden, you can see the downs. It's about where that garden is. So I'm not really very good on trends. It's, you know, I, to me, if the client likes a particular kind of garden sofa, well, that's fine. That's up to them. That's their choice. It's not the kind of thing that I get particularly hung up about. I'm more hung up about... Um, how levels and geometry and everything relates back to the hu- the house itself and out to the wider environment. Yeah, wonderful. So my last question for you is, what plant would you take to a desert island? 
So do I have to assume it's a desert island that's tropical or is it in the Hebrides or is it in South Georgia? Um, so obviously my answer would be that I, it would need to be able to survive in its environment and not be a threat to the indigenous planting. Um, so biosecurity would be, you know, so apart from that, to be to be more frivolous about about I think probably I'd want to take a juniper with me and hope that there'll be a bit of grain about and I could spend my time learning how to distill gin (laughs) to keep me going in the loneliness of being stuck out there staring out to sea waiting to be rescued. (laughs) I think that's a perfect idea. (laughs) Yeah juniper communis which is a British native. There you go I might have to sail out to join you. Well, thank you to Lynn um, for joining us today. I'm Rachel Forsyth and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Horticulture Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. A huge thank you again to Lynn. Goodbye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.